this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week, another one of those fixtures of Bloomington. I'm really happy to have this person on the program. Joe Varga. He's the IU Indiana University Associate Professor of Labor Studies. Joe, thanks for being on Big Talk. Oh, no problem. Glad to be here. Glad to be back on WFHB. Everybody support WFHB. Give a donation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I agree with what he says. Joe, the reason it's fitting for you to be on this week is because labor and unions, <laughs> it's sort of a new era. Yeah. I yeah. would say. Would you agree? Yeah, labor is in the news, and, and it, it, these things tend to come in waves. And so when you have a big strike like we have right now with the UAW, I get a lot of attention from journalists and other media outlets. And when, when it's in that kind of bottoming wave where nobody's paying attention, people go, labor studies, you teach about childbirth? <laughs> so, but right now, yeah, our department is you know getting a lot of attention. And actually what this does, one of the things it does is when we have a period like this, and this has been going on for about a year and a half, two years, we get more students. Our enrollments actually go up because students get interested in, hey, what are those labor unions and, you know, what are the laws that govern them and why do people want to join? So, yeah, we're in an upswing right now. And in fact, I'm working on a piece and I'm, you know, the speculation is, is this a kind of long term trend Uh for a revitalization of labor unions or is it just another kind of spurt within an economic cycle? And I'm saying that there's evidence that this is a longer, this could be a longer term trend that I'm calling the great refusal. So I'm just kind of putting a plug in for my own work. I should have a piece out very soon entitled, Is This the Great Refusal? I found some data dealing with the year 2022. Mm -hmm. There were 424 work stoppages Mm -hmm. in the United States. 417 of them were strikes. Seven were lockouts. Quarter million workers were Mm -hmm. involved in that. Interestingly, 32% of those work stoppages had to do with non-union workers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But get this. You might like this, Joe. One-third of those work stoppages were in the food service industry. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Almost two-thirds in educational services. Oh, wow. So I, a, that I didn't know, yeah. I uh-huh. wonder, huh. is, it, is it those kind of careers or jobs or businesses that have to do with women? Well, there's a good question. Educational services probably covers college campuses. That that's that uh-uh. would be my guess. Oh. Okay. And there has been a lot of that. There's been a lot of graduate student organizing. Yes. There's been a lot of rank and file administrative organizing. And I think, yeah, that that one could say that those jobs are probably skewed gender-wise. Yeah. Uh, and I think that is, again, part of this great refusal that I'm talking about is that people are getting a little fed up with going along with business as usual. Right. Uh, particularly women. I have a friend who who teaches over at uh, Purdue, Titi Bhattacharya, and she's written extensively about what's called social reproduction theory. And it's about how women not only have to be members of the labor force now and usually work in service sector jobs or lower paying jobs, 
but they also are responsible for a lot of the homework, the work of running the household, which yep. is what she calls social reproduction. Actually, Marx called it social reproduction, yeah. producing the workers for the next generation. And a lot of women are just kind of fed up with that, with that situation. It's too much. It's too much, exactly. Of now, course. I go back to the time when Ronald Reagan came into <laughs> office and just about the first darn thing that he yeah. did was bust up the Professional Air Traffic Controllers yeah, Organization. Yeah. I have a, um, a picture in my office, and it's from the town of Mantuak up in Wisconsin. Good old, is, yes. Yeah, you know, if you know yeah, right on the, the Lake Michigan. Right, where they, make, they do a lot of shipbuilding. Yes. And there's a, it, the picture is Reagan giving a speech to the Sandhogs, who were these guys that carried, you know, the materials during these construction projects and it was sand hogs for reagan and they were all there it's 1980 it's right before the election and he's up there get, telling them we're gonna make america great again right and, yeah and the whole bit and a lot of union members voted for him they sure and then, and then a year and a half later they were like what the hell have we done yeah um because the air traffic controllers situation now one of the things to keep in mind about that air traffic controller strike is that it was an illegal strike it that was technically illegal they were not allowed legally to go on strike but they did but they were acting after a period the 1970s was a period of labor activism. Whether we think of it as that or not, it was a period not only of a lot of strikes and a lot of labor actions, but a lot of what we call internal organizing in the in the um, the labor studies field, which means that there were a lot of unions going through a lot of internal strife, and there was a lot of rank and file rebellion against the entrenched bureaucracies that were running the big unions at the time, like the carpenters and the mine workers and the auto workers. And so it was this period of pretty intense union activism, and the air traffic controllers were kind of the tail end of that. Yeah. So the, their action was kind of in keeping with what had been going on for quite a while. And they did I, – I know for a fact, you, know, you look at the interviews from the leadership, they did not expect Reagan's reaction. Right. And what he did was to signal to private corporations, you know, go ahead, fire your workers, do whatever you want. I got your back. Strikes, I got your back, exactly. And that, that started <laughs> – what can be described as the decline yeah. of yeah. labor movement. In fact, labor and unions, along with the word liberal, mm -hmm. became dirty words. Yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So if you look at the numbers, and I, I try to point this out all the time, I point it out to my students, I point it out in my writing. If you look at the numbers, there's something called the Great Convergence, and then there's the Great Divergence. Huh. So the Great Convergence happens mostly in the late 50s through the early 70s. And you get the union rates that go up to 35% of the private sector workforce. Mm -hmm. There's public sector worker organizing, and public sector is different legally than private sector. Right. But what you have converging at that time was the amount of corporate profits that were going to shareholders and the amount that were going to workers. Uh -huh. And they almost meet on, on charts. You can see it on graphs. They almost meet. So the workers' pay is rising. The amount that's going to shareholders and going back into the company, into CEO pay, is going down. And they almost touch each other. Yeah. And then in the late 70s, 
they start to diverge. Oh. And, and then by the 90s, you get this. I, I wish everybody could see this. I'm pointing it out with my hands. <laughs> His hands get, are separated. They're separating. Largely. You get this divergence and you get the, the worker pay stagnating or yeah. even going down in some sectors and the amount of money going to shareholders and corporate profits going to CEOs goes way up and you get this divergence. And it's as bad or even worse than it's ever been yeah, yeah. to this date. And I don't want to give the impression that that starts with Ronald Reagan because it doesn't. And actually, I think you can really trace it to the oil shocks of the early 70s. And you've got corporations that are kind of panicking over their rate of profit. They're seeing their rates of profit being eaten into by the rising fuel prices. And they're saying, like, how do we how do we raise our profits back up? Well, we can start attacking unions and we can start lowering worker pay. And so you really see it. You know, the, the reason why I got interested in the field that I'm interested in is my dad was a union worker in New Jersey. He was uh-huh. a factory. He was a factory worker. He worked yeah. on a he worked on a diaper factory. So they, they made disposable diapers. <laughs> yeah. And in 1974, during the the, uh, the crisis, the oil shocks, yes. and, and the Great Recession that happened then. Lines at the pump. His company moved to Arkansas huh. because Arkansas was a right-to-work state, and they didn't have strong unions. And they did offer some of the workers, hey, do you want to move to – and you know, we, he had three kids. We were all in school. That's what, We lived in New Jersey. And so he lost that job, and I was totally confused by that. This was uh, probably 650, 700 workers all lost their jobs in a very small community in New Jersey, and I just couldn't understand, like, why wouldn't a company want happy, productive workers in a good community with good schools? Why would they want to, like, up, you know, just, like, tear the rug out from under it? Oh, you were a dumb kid. I was a dumb, I was a naive kid. <laughs> Actually, my, you know, my interest in workers goes back a little before that, if we're talking about my dad. I was about seven years old. I was with my dad and we were watching a fire at a paint store and we're watching the firemen run in and they're coming out and they're coughing and they're getting medical treatment in the parking lot and they're trying to stop the fire. And I said to my dad, I said, dad, those guys got to be the highest paid people in the world. (laughs) And of course he looked at me the way a dad looks at his seven-year-old son and says, well, son, let me tell you about how our system works. (laughs) And I just, I have not been able to figure out ever since then. Why aren't those people the highest paid people in the world? You know, they they go in, they risk their lives for us. They do dangerous, dirty, physical labor. And I've never been able to figure that out. Like, why aren't those people the highest compensated people? Instead, the center fielder for the Mets (laughs) makes what probably 23 total fire departments right. departments make. make. Yeah, 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 yeah. And of course, the, the the rate of return on that this year in particular. Well, I know you're a Cubs fan and you're you're busting me about the, <laughs> the Mets, but since now, you guys I, might actually make the playoffs. I have this theory. Tell me if you think I'm crazy or not. The Republicans at one point decided that the Democrats get a lot of money from labor unions. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay, which yeah. they did. Mm-hmm. So the strategy was, if we demonize labor Mm -hmm. and make the Democrats in league with these demons, it's going to hurt them. Yeah, absolutely. Usually, uh, since this is WFHB, I'll just let it rip. But uh, yeah, there's there's no doubt about that. Um, if you look at what right to work laws actually do, uh-huh. and they're some of the most misunderstood laws in the country, and just that brand right to work. I mean, it has nothing to do with having the right to a job. 
what right to work laws do is they say you can have a union in a workplace and 70% of the people can have voted for that union. But if you don't want to pay the dues to that union, you don't have to. And right. you still get covered by the contract. What that does, that is a direct assault. I actually got Brian Bosma to admit this on a w, on a, a public radio show that I did with him. If you remember Bosma, who was the speaker of the Indiana yes. House. And I said, you know, we were talking about it was on the 10th anniversary of the passage of Indiana's right to work law. Mm-hmm. And I got him to admit that it had nothing to do with anything that the business people were saying or anything about job relocation. They wanted to cut off money to the Democratic Party. And the the way to do that was to cut off the dues-collecting ability of labor unions, who then obviously funnel that money to the Democratic Party. So one of the great uh, questions in labor history that even left historians, you know, we dispute and we talk about is, was there such a thing as what's called the New Deal Coalition? Uh-huh. And the New Deal Coalition comes out of obviously the New Deal, right? Yes. Franklin Roosevelt's series of laws that were pro-labor that at the time you still had a lot of Republican support for labor unions, particularly in some of the cities where Republicans were still competitive electorally right. in big cities. Hey, and Chicago had a Republican Chicago, mayor. Great example. Long Perfect ago. example. Long ago, though. What the New Deal did was it brought the working people and the, and the union people into the Democratic Party. Uh-huh. And so the big dispute among labor historians is, did the New Deal coalition actually exist as a real thing? And I think there's no doubt. I come out on the side that says there's no doubt it did. Yeah. What some people call it and make a dispute out of is it's called the Labor Capital Accord. And it said that during the period from the 30s into the 50s, labor unions became an accepted part of American capitalism. That most corporations, right, whether they liked it or not, started to say, all right, with the labor unions, they're, they're the way that workers organize themselves. It's better just to deal, to have an entity to deal with, and they've become an accepted part. And actually, when you think about it, that is where programs like mine come from. Uh, the Labor Studies Department, or what was actually was the Labor Studies School at IU, was started by Herman Wells. Herman ah. Wells himself, you know, in, in the late 40s. The idea was the labor unions left to their own devices are going to be taken over by these dirty leftist communists. Let's professionalize them. Let's yeah. have schools where we bring in the labor union leaders. We give them degrees. We teach them how to negotiate contracts yeah. and manage contracts. And that's where the labor studies departments came from. The idea was we're going to tame organized labor. Well, and, uh, and then there is the idea that the mob yeah. came into certain right, right. So uh, now unions. Yes, yeah, we'll get into you know the, the, the kind of backlash against that. But there's no doubt that that happened, yeah. that the, 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 there was this kind of acceptance. I don't want to call it an accord because there were still companies and there were still very powerful interests who were like, we can't, we can't have these labor unions interfering in our businesses. But for the most part, they become an accepted part of the American system. And there's no doubt that there was a thing called the New Deal Coalition, particularly under like w- when you had the um, 
the merger of the AFL and the CIO uh-huh. in 1954. Huge. Uh, I hope I'm not getting the year wrong. Sometimes I'm not, I'm not a great historian the the, in that neck of the woods. And part of that deal was the CIO unions were the more radical unions at the time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the leadership of the con- Congress of Industrial Organizations, yep. a lot of the leadership of those unions were socialists, they were communists, and they were anarchists. Part of the deal was if you were going to come into the new AFL-CIO, the merged entity, you had to purge your leadership of avowed communists. And there were unions like the UE, United Electrical Workers, that refused to do it, and they never joined the coalition. But most of them did. And most of them tried to professionalize their leadership, and they purged most of the radicals. It hurt unions overall, I think, because it purged the most dedicated people. Yeah. But it also driven. Yeah, the most driven people. Yeah. But it also led to this period of the AFL CIO under people like George Meany, who was the president for forever, really becoming influential in Democratic Party politics. Yeah. Like until 1972, yeah. you did not have a single presidential candidate for the Democratic Party who didn't have the stamp of approval of the AFL CIO. That's right. So you did have a New Deal coalition. And what the Republicans and the business leadership and things like the National Association of Manufacturers recognized in the 70s was the way to really attack the Democrats was to attack them at this funding source. And the funding source was the late where they hit them in the wallet. Hit them in the wallet. Yes. And that is definitely part of the what we call the assault on labor, the war on labor that's been happening since the 1970s. Joe, you know this better than I do. That if you take a quick scan of American history, mm-hmm. you are going to see the police, the army, private enforcers yeah. hired by businesses yeah. to bust up strikes. Right, right. So when I talk about the National Association of Manufacturers, I usually think of them as hand in hand with the American Legion. The American Legion has been one of the most reactionary forces in American civil culture for 100 years now. And they were, people like that were the muscle behind breaking up strikes before the National Labor Relations Act of 1934 and I was part of a panel discussion at a conference on whether the AFL-CIO should remove or kick out the police unions from the larger uh, umbrella organization. And it's, it's, it's a pretty controversial topic. You're not kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I was, I was on the side of the fa- in favor of kicking them out. Because traditionally, over the years, when it's come down, there have been times when police will side with workers, and but they're rare, and they're usually very contextualized. One of the things that, that I talk about in, in um, some of my work is the streetcar strike in Indianapolis in 1913. And the police actually backed the streetcar workers because they were in a dispute with the mayor of Indianapolis, <laughs> and they wanted to make him look bad. And so they sided with the workers and allowed the workers to overturn the rail cars and block up the the uh, you know the transit lines and all that. But those are rare instances. Yeah. For the most part, the muscle is either the public police force, the national, the state guard, or privatized police forces like the Pinkertons over the years. And yeah, that has been a big wedge used against working people. 
I'll give how you. many times yeah. were there actually shootings? Yes, yeah, where there's killings. People. Yeah, there yeah. were the picnic shootings, yeah. uh, Memorial Day, the shootings. Memorial Day shootings of the oh, UAW workers. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, so acts of violence like that. I mean, one of the things I, I usually bring my students through in my American Labor History courses is uh, th- things like um, the Battle of Blair Mountain, which uh-huh. most people don't know about. I don't know if you know about it yep, in West yep. Virginia, and this was a pitched battle. Between right. mine workers and the state, uh, the state guard of the, of the state of West Virginia, yep. and it's the only the it was the first time that bombs were used from airplanes, incendiary devices on American citizens by the American government. Yeah. They were thrown out of these biplanes at the uh, at the um, uh, mine workers. Of course, the second time it happens is move in Philadelphia in the 1980s when they bombed the, the Mayor Wilson block. Good. Mayor Wilson Good. But uh, so I wanted to I wanted to talk about this though. It's, it's an interesting example. I get most of my experience as a labor studies professor from my experience with the Teamsters. Uh-huh. And I worked for the Teamsters for 10 years, and then I was a member uh, when I was a clerical worker at the new school. But I was a truck driver in New Jersey for 10 years, and we were organized by the Teamsters. And we went on strike in 1998, and the police, I'm not going to say they supported us, but we had relationships with most of the local cops. And our relationship tended to consist of I have to park illegally to deliver this beer to this bar. Right. The cop comes up and says, hey, buddy, you're parked illegally. And then you go, hey, you want a case of beer? (laughs) And you give him a case of beer and he lets you stay there for 45 minutes while you make your delivery. And you develop, we develop relationships with them. Yeah. So that when we went on strike, we blocked, for instance, we blocked the entrance to the plant in New Jersey. And the cops would show up, you know, the owner of the company called them, get these people off of my, you know, my entrance. And they'd show up and they'd say, all right, you guys, we're giving you a half an hour to get out of here. You better clear this area. And they walk away. And a half hour later, we're still there. And they come up again. They go, all right, we really mean it this time. <laughs> and and they, they basically sided with us. And we won that strike in six days. But that's a rare thing. That doesn't happen very often. More often than not, they're on the other side. Our guest this week is Joe Varga, Indiana University Associate Professor of Labor Studies. Very interesting times dealing with workers, workers' rights, labor unions. As a matter of fact, as we are speaking, recording this right now, the President of the United States of America is visiting with picketers on the strike line, United Auto Workers in the Detroit area. Yeah, there's nobody who remembers that ever happening right. before. Well, I don't. I don't believe it ever has happened. Yeah. No sitting American president has ever walked a picket line. Because you know Joe Biden, he's just a regular working guy from Scranton, New Jersey. He's a he's an old union guy. You know, um, he's. I don't. I can't curse. Right. No. He's he's full of it. Um, <laughs> but what he does. But he's a politician. He's Come a politician. On. And what he needs is he needs to make up for what he did last year with the railway workers uh-huh. when he sided with the rail companies against the railway workers and, the, and said, you guys can't go on strike. Uh, that was damaging among rank and file activists and labor unions. It showed him in a bad light. So now he's trying to make up for that. I'm not going to say that Joe Biden is evil or anything like that. He, um, His administration, his appointments to the National Labor Relations Board have made several rulings that have been very pro-worker and very pro-union. 
Um, the legislation that they back, the PRO Act and things like that, never gets anywhere. It doesn't get out of committee in Congress, <laughs> but they do back it. And they need to do that because the Democratic Party, even though the thing we talked about earlier, the New Deal coalition, that's you know mostly at an end. There's no more real solid relationship like that. The Democratic Party at the national level and at the state level still relies on labor's, what we call labor's ground game. Um, it is well known that Barack Obama never would have won in 2008 without organized labor going house to house in states like Michigan, in states like Indiana, which, if you remember, Barack Obama actually won Indiana. Uh -huh. Hell yeah. And it was, it was uh, Dick Trumpka, who was the AFL-CIO president at the time, who went out to workers in places like Michigan and Indiana and Ohio and said, look, basically what he said was this, and he didn't say it in these words. He says, I know you guys are racists. I know you don't like a black guy running for president, but he's pro-union, he's pro-worker, and I want you to vote for him. Wow. And it was it's well known by most people who analyze that race that Dick Trumpka's words put Obama over the top in places like Indiana, and that he would not have won Indiana and Ohio and Michigan without Trumpka and without Trumpka's support. And with that, again, the labor ground game, because there are a few organizations in the United States that can put that many people on the street, going door to door, knocking on doors, saying, hey, who are you voting for? Are you a union member? Are you a worker? Um, so it's the labor ground game that still puts the Democrats over the top. And even in this computerized digital age, we know that knocking on doors is still, it's, it still matters. about the most <laughs> yeah. effective yeah. way of... Yeah getting people out yep. and voting and getting the message yeah. out. This is actually something that I think the Democratic Party is still good at and still better than the Republicans at. And if they lose this edge, they're going to be in trouble. They can still do this kind of long, what I call long tail ground game. And the long tail is analyzing that population right down to the very end and saying, if we can get 50 households from this district to vote for our guy over the other guy, and we knock on their doors, we're going to win this election. Huh. And they, I think they still do that better than the Republicans. If the Republicans ever learn how to do that better, um, <laughs> the Democrats are going to be even, even more trouble. But anyway, back to Joe Biden. Joe Biden needs labor, and he needs labor's ground game. If he's going to win in 2024, um, let's face it, a lot of union workers really eat up the Trump rhetoric. Uh, yes. which is which is of course nonsense and they please don't <laughs> you know, if you're a worker and you're listening to this please don't vote for donald trump he's a fascist um, <laughs> that's pretty straightforward that's a straightforward okay let, let me get. put the invitation out there that if anybody <laughs> wants to argue with that point they're welcome to come on this program but i've got to confess I've been a union guy all my life. I've been in, involved in three different unions. Mm -hmm. 18 years old, I was with municipal laborers in Chicago. Right. Mm -hmm. Then the National Writers Union and then the Newspaper Guild. Okay. So I've been around uh, with unions and, I, and I'm not objective when it comes uh -huh. to yes, this. Nor am I. Yeah. <laughs> but I would open up these airwaves for someone who wants to say, hey, Mike, you're full of... Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, if somebody wants to come on and debate something like, is the new Republican populism good for American workers? I'm happy to talk about that. There, there's a legitimate point there. You know, I have my political views and I have my positions, but I'm more than willing to talk about it. Yeah. 
Our guest, Joe Varga, Indiana University Associate Professor of Labor Studies. He has written one book and is in the process of writing another. Let's talk about the one you've got out there, yeah. Hell's Kitchen and the Battle for Urban Space, uh, released in 2014 by New York University Press. That dealt with the class struggle and progressive reform in New York City, the years 1894 to 1914, what what big thing happened? The what progressive era. That was definitely the progressive era. Uh, so what you had happening during that period and what I write about in this book was you had this group of people slowly taking over urban governance called the progressives. They said that, you know, laissez-faire is not working. Hands-off government, small government is not working. We need an activist government to solve the problems of American cities. La, 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 la. Come back next week for part two of our conversation with Joe Varga. Same time, same station or on WFHB.org.